We are glad all of you guys are here this morning as we jump back into, guess what? Some of you guys will be shocked if you've been with us for a while. We're in the book of Romans. All right, and, and I still get super excited about the book of Romans. There are many people who claim that the book of Romans is the most influential book in history. Because the Bible's not a book. It's actually a library of a bunch of books put together. And so if you could single out one book, many people, and there's going to be some debate probably, but many people point to Romans as, as really being uh, the most influential Christian book because it, it clearly, li- li- blah, blah, it clearly, <laughs> that's funny, I'm saying something's clear, but not clearly. It clearly lays out the Christian faith, I think, in such a clear, compelling way that it's hard to walk away from reading the book of Romans with a different message than what Jesus proclaimed and, and what his life was all about and what, what Christianity is. So we are getting towards the end of it. We'll be done with it this month. And then next month, uh, we're going be, to begin a series on parenting, uh, what God's Word has to say about parenting. Uh, and we'll try to just look at those principles and encourage uh, um, you if, uh, and all of us have some influence in that in that area. Even if you're not raising a child, you, you probably are connected to people who are, and you can help encourage them with God's truth. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into uh, Romans chapter 15. God, we love you. Thank you for today. God, I pray you would open our hearts and minds to your truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, what in the world motivates Paul, and I'm talking about how influential the book of Romans is, well, the author of it is Paul. And, and I know we've talked a lot about him. He gets mentioned a lot in, in messages when you're teaching through especially things in the New Testament because the guy writes almost two-thirds of the New Testament. But what makes this guy tick? What motivates him to do what he's... I've heard that People Magazine claimed that he is the second most influential person in history, according to their, you know, something that they came up with. I was trying to verify that. I, I heard that. I think that's accurate. He's definitely up there, as, as I think easily people could claim he's one of the most influential people in all of history. So what makes him do what he does? If you know a little bit of his background, we're going to kind of look at that just so we know in chapter 15, he kind of shares, here's what drives me. Here's what motivates me. Here's why I do what I do. And I think it should be an encouragement to, to ask ourselves that question. Well, what drives us? What motivates us? What is God calling us to? Because God has called us to the same thing that Paul has been called to. Now, it may not look exactly like how, how Paul has, has uh, lived out his life. But, but the same calling is upon our lives, and I think sometimes we miss that. So um, a little bit of his background, um, he was a terrorist of, of Christians. He, he set out to destroy, uh, imprison, m- kill, punish people who said they were following Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's how we are introduced to Paul. Actually, the very first time we see him, and this is in the book of Acts, you can kind of jump into Acts and look at his story and his life is really laid out there. He's, he's standing in the wings of the very first person that we have recorded 
being martyred for their faith in Jesus. And, and Stephen is being stoned. And the first mention we have of Paul is this young guy, Paul, holding the coats. He's the coat rack so that as the guys are stoning Stephen, they really have good motion. And so they're like, here, hold my coat. I really got to get into this. I mean, that's the picture that we have of him endorsing, being a part of it. After that, we see that he goes to get permission to, to persecute people who are following Jesus. And he's on a path and a mission. And, and the unique thing, I think, or, or an interesting point, is that this is someone who claims to love God. And he thinks what he's doing is, is honoring God and following God. And he's doing with it with all of his enthusiasm and all of the talent that we see God uses as he redirects him. All that passion and all that leadership ability and all that uh, everything that we see to make him influential for Jesus. He's using that against Jesus when we first are introduced to him. And so he's headed up to Damascus because there's supposedly a group up there of Jesus followers. And he's out there to, to go persecute him. And he comes into this incredible, miraculous counter with Jesus on the, the road to Damascus. And so he goes through this process of being challenged directly by Jesus, like, why are you persecuting me? And, and it changes, we won't get into it too much, changes, of course, his life. He's blinded, um, and then he eventually uh, understands who Jesus is and that he's actually the fulfillment of the thing he's trying to defend what God is doing and everything even in the Old Testament, that all of it points to Jesus. So he comes to this realization. Then he spends three years in Damascus hanging out with these Christians. And I think that's a really cool picture. Like, I want to be a part of that church. Talk about a church that just loves and accepts people and knows that nobody's too far away from God. I mean, can you imagine it? And there is some indication that they were very hesitant to accept him. They're like, maybe he's just trying to, like, infiltrate, you know? He's like a double agent or something, and he's trying to pretend that he's following Jesus so he can get to know who's really following Jesus, and so he can destroy us all. So they had to embrace this, this Christian terrorist, but he becomes a Jesus follower, and so he spends three years with them learning what it means to love Jesus and follow Jesus and be a part of God's people. And then he's, he, what motivates him, that's what we're getting down to. We'll answer this question hopefully eventually. Okay. What motivates him is he, he knows that God's heart is to share this with the rest of the world. And so after that part of his journey, he goes out and, and he, he first goes to Antioch because there's believers there. And then he continues to go into kind of the Middle East area, the Mediterranean area, and all these books of the Bible, if, you've, if some of these are familiar to you, uh, Corinthians, Ephesians, he goes to Corinth, he goes to Ephesus, um, Galatia, he goes to Galatia, where we get Galatians. He goes and he's planting and starting these churches, and he takes three trips as he goes and starts them, and then sometimes he's going back to, to, uh, to just check up on them and guide them and encourage them. And on his third trip, he finds himself in Corinth, and it's winter, and so it's too dangerous to get back uh, to where he, I think he's headed back to Damascus or Antioch. I don't remember right now, but um, he winters in Corinth, and that's where he writes the book of Romans. 
And so as he's thinking about that, as he goes through this whole journey, here's the other shocking thing about his life. He is beaten. He is whipped. His back is laid open, not just, you know, whipped and punished. And I mean, he, he, he has scars from the kind of torture that he's gone through just by being a Jesus follower and proclaiming him. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. He was imprisoned. Um, he was uh, stoned and left for dead at one point. I mean, his whole life story is just fascinating. But, and, and something miraculous happened. We don't know if he was resurrected, that they stoned him and then he died. And then, because after they stoned him, he popped up. Don't laugh. And I was thinking that, like, Paul's like, oh, wow. Bloop. All right, let me go. And he goes to the next city and proclaims Jesus more. So we don't know if he died or if he was miraculously healed or protected or what's happening there. Something miraculous is happening. It, but, but he's gone through some tough things, um, some incredibly hard things. What motivates a guy like this? What drives him to do what he has accomplished and how God's worked in his life? Well, I think he gives us some clear indication in Romans chapter 15. So we'll jump into verse 7. It says, Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given the glory. And so what he's, we're not quite getting to to what motivates him. Um, He's a little rewind from the last couple weeks. He's telling people who follow Jesus to not allow gray areas to divide you. That among God's people, you're going to have incredible diversity. And that actually brings God more honor, more glory. That it is a beautiful, his bride, Jesus' bride, the church, is more beautiful because of how diverse it is. And in that diversity, though, our, 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 our selfishness can creep in and we can go, well, here's my preference. And this is how I like to do worship. And this is what I think church should be about. And this is who I think should have more attention. And this is how we think we should live out our Christian life day to day. And this is what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat and what we should wear and what we shouldn't wear and what we should say and what we, sh- you know, and, and then Paul's like, I know what can happen is this beautiful diversity that brings God honor, that makes the world go, why is that group together? What do they have in common? Why do they have such love for each other? Why do they have just such peace in their heart? Like, what are they about? Why do they care about people so much? And there's nothing in common. Like, there's, it's such a diverse group. Like that can scream to the world that Jesus is really who he says he is. And it's only because of our unity in Jesus that that's why we have that. So it really points, points to him. But there's this huge warning that Paul is, is reiterating. To accept one another. Don't get hung up on gray areas. If the Bible's not clear about it, there's not some clear verse on it and you're trying to help God out and maybe add some extra things or something, don't allow that to, to uh, cause disunity and disharmony within God's people. Um, accept one another. Put others' preferences, put your personal preferences aside and actually defer to them. Um, 
So we did two weeks of that, and then he goes into verse 8. Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might give God, uh, give glory to God for his mercies to them. This is what the psalmist meant when he wrote. And then he quotes David and psalms that he wrote. And he's pointing back saying, look, everything that God is doing He's also including me. And I'm talking about me, not Paul saying me. (laughs) He's not, yeah. Okay, Gentiles. And this is a theme throughout the New Testament that we see reiterated again and again and again. That Paul first goes to his fellow uh, ancestry, the Jewish people, the people that God worked through, that nation that pulled prophets and and leaders and, and, and he... Um, revealed himself through them and they had this idea that to be right with God you had to be Jewish and there was even a way that you could become Jewish through some ceremonies and things but there's certain things you had to do and that was a fight that had to go on in the early church and Paul is crystal clear no you do not have to become Jewish and do Jewish things and no the men don't have to go out and get uh, surgery to, to be a Christ follower. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Praise God for Paul. But he's really clear on that. But why is that such a big deal? Here's my concern is that we read that and we're like, oh, another thing about Gentiles are accepted or something. And we go, okay, move on. And it's not as deep of an issue for us. And I asked this in the first service. I didn't have a single hand raised. Anybody here not a Gentile, which means you're Jewish by heritage? Jewish heritage? Anyone? If I was Jewish, I'd be proud. Yeah, hey, Jesus was Jewish too, so. No? Okay, you're all stinking Gentiles. And I say that very specifically because that is how, sadly, we get a lot of indication that there was not, I'm not trying to judge each individual uh, Jewish person, but... um, There was this overarching theme that they were the people God loved and accepted and everyone else were stinking Gentiles. They they really, there was a a sense within the nation that was puffed up with pride, um, even though God just chose them out of his gracious, loving kindness. Not that they deserve that, but but, um, there was this pride issue that had to be dealt with. And so Paul goes around, and his first contact is with Jewish people. That's his background. And he would meet with the Jewish community and say, hey, the Messiah that we've read all about in the Old Testament, that we've been looking for, it is Jesus, and pointing to all the fulfillment that he made. But then he went on to even, uh, he went on to, to really make more of a focus even on Gentiles. And, and people who didn't have that Jewish background and ancestry. And so when, when he says this, man, this is a big deal to Jewish people reading this and getting this through their minds. Like, okay, uh, my understanding is that we are God's chosen people. But he, in every way, just as much is extending out and inviting non-Jewish people to be a part of of, of what he's doing and have a relationship with him because of Jesus. Jesus has made that possible. So here's what I want you to do. Instead of going, yes, Gentile, Jewish, we don't think about those issues. In verse 9, it says, he also came so that 
the Gentiles might give glory to God. Replace Gentile with whatever other group you naturally exclude from the possibility of them coming to Jesus, coming to, to the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus of the Bible. Whatever that is. Oh, man, they have this, this lifestyle and this morality that is so far from God. There's no way that they would ever surrender and, and accept who Jesus is and trust in him. There's no way. It might be individuals in your life. I know I've got some family members that naturally I tend to go, yeah, there's no way. <laughs> but here's what we have screaming off the page of God's word to us. A guy named Paul. And just imagine the people in Damascus going, okay, our category of somebody who's never going to come to Jesus are the Pharisees who are trying to kill us and our family and everybody we love. Like, that's not a group I naturally think like, oh, they're the ones that, that Jesus came for so that they might give glory to God. And so... But Paul's making that point, and I think this drives home what, what really drives him, all right? So I know I spent some time on that, but stick with me. Then the psalmist says, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name, verse 10. And in another place it is written, Rejoice, rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. Verse 11, And yet again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise him, all you people of the earth. Verse 12, And in another place, Isaiah said, It's kind of, so Paul's like dropping all these verses and all these psalms that he knows. That was like their hymn book of the Jewish community, the psalms. And so especially, I think, they, you know, that just kind of sticks in your heart and in your mind when you've sung that your whole life. So he's able to just quote scripture and quote scripture and say, man, all over the Old Testament, God is saying he loves people who don't have this Jewish background. Um, and then he goes in verse 13 to say, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Gives this wonderful, encouraging prayer to the people he's teaching and trying to share what he's passionate about. But we can be just as guilty as our Jewish, um, our Jewish friends, especially as we see the reflection of the Bible, of putting people in a category that says they can't come to God because of whatever their background is. Number one, our life is lived for others just as much as it is for God. I think Jesus gives this picture and, and displays this with his own life. That his life, he came, as much as he's following the will of the Father and honoring him, he is living and pouring his life out for others. The Titanic. Ever hear of this vessel, Titanic? Ring a bell. Google it. Check it out. Um, I've heard so many ser sermon illustrations using the Titanic. It's such a well-known kind of thing that happened in, in modern history, I guess modern history. And um, it does remind me, sadly of what we as God's people can do. You know, part of the big story of the Titanic is they didn't have enough lifeboats on the ship, right? So this unsinkable ship goes down, hits an iceberg, 
and the unthinkable happens, well, uh, as the ship is going down, they say, well, let's fill up these lifeboats, and they, they get the lifeboats down out of the water. They start to fill them. They don't fill all the lifeboats to, all, to, the, to the greatest capacity that they have. All the lifeboats, I think it's somewhere around only 50% of the people could fit in them if they were completely full. But they go out half full, and they, you know, they're just sent out. And then what those people do is what they knew to do. You got in the lifeboat, and you got far away from the ship. This is a giant boat, and what happens when it goes under is it sucks everything down under with it. And so you got to get away from what's happening here as the boat is sinking. And so the picture, and I even think we saw some of this picture in the movie, right, if you've seen the movie, um, is that they're away from the devastation that's happening. And then they know that they'll have more mass as they huddle the boats together so that it'll be even less likely that they would get sucked under when the, when the ship goes under. And, and, and the picture that we get here is of a, a, a group of people that, that have an opportunity to rescue more people, to share uh, a way for people to be rescued more, but instead they're more concerned about themselves so they sit back in their own safety. And, and, and we see some rare glimpses of, of some people willing to uh, put their own safety aside even and, and go out and try to rescue people who are in the water and stuff, right? But that's a picture, sadly, of the church when we don't care about lost, lostness beyond our group. We just want to huddle together and sing songs. And Paul says, man, that, that is not, when you read what drives him, <laughs> that's not what drives him, gathering together other believers and singing songs. That's the last thing. That, he never mentions anything like that. His passion, what makes him do what he does and makes him so powerful in, in how God uses him is he has such a heart for people who don't know Jesus to know him and to know his hope and to know his peace. Second Peter 3, 8 through 9 it says, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. That's God's heart. Do you have God's heart? Do I have God's heart? Do you recognize that his patience, when it says that he is, he's not being slow about this, uh, his, he's being patient for your sake. Put your name in there. Because 2,000 years later, that seems like a long time since Jesus ascended back into heaven. But to me, that seems like a long time. But then I go, wait, I'm 2,000 years on the other side of the cross. Thank God for your patience. And, and there's a reflection of God's heart. Is that he wants everyone, that's his desire, wants everyone to come and, and to repent and uh, find salvation through Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, 19 through 23 says, Though I'm free and belong to no one, this is Paul, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. So I hope you're asking that question that I tried to present you with. What drives this crazy man? Well, he just said it here in another way. That, that I have made myself, I, I'm free, totally. I know where I stand with God and I'm completely free. 
And, and, but I have decided to give my life away uh, to win as many as possible. That's, uh, some people ask me as a pastor, and we get into like, hey, what do you guys view in the future? Or what are you guys about? Or what's your mission or goal? And I, I simply put it this way, that we want to try to reach as many people as possible. Do whatever we can to be as effective as we can to reach as many people as possible to, to put their trust in Jesus. That's it. So what can we do? What can we do more? How can we be more effective? How can we, uh, you know, get more tools to try to do whatever we can uh, to do that? That's Paul's heart. That's what drove him. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. And Christ's law is love, can be summed up in that. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have also become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Now you may have heard that, that passage and those verses before, but that's what drives this crazy man. That's what, what, how he is the most influential, I think, guy outside of Jesus that we encounter. is because he is driven by saying, I'll do whatever. I, I'm not going to compromise. He's, he doesn't like, compromise who God is or the message or anything like that. But he's like the method to get Jesus to people. Whatever. I'm going to love them enough to step into their world. They're all legalistic and they got all these rules and they think that's what make God, makes God happy. I'm not going to go in there and make a big deal about the rules. I'm going to actually not offend them and follow their rules while I'm connecting with them so I can just point to Jesus and the freedom that he brings. Do you see his attitude? He's not going, well, I'm supposed to proclaim Jesus. I'm going to get my megaphone out, get on my soapbox and yell at people that they're going to hell. I don't care how they respond. I don't care how that comes across. I don't care about the effectiveness of that. That's not what Paul says at all. If, if that's your method, there's other churches you can go to. Because I don't think that's what God's called us to do. He's called us to effectively and lovingly and passionately share the good news and do it in a wise way. That, that doesn't just say, well, I'm, I'm puffed up and I preach Jesus and I don't care what you think about that, but cares and loves about people like Jesus did to step into their world and go, how can I communicate the truth of Jesus, this life-changing message, in a way that they're going to receive it and accept it? That's his heart. And then at the end of that whole passage, he says, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. That if you've ever had this experience, and, and I can tell you in personal, like I grew up in a Christian church, and I thought the most scary, dreadful thing to ever do was to share like the gospel, the good news, Jesus with someone. Man, they're going to think I'm just a weirdo. They're going to think I'm preachy. They're going to think I'm self-righteous. They're, they don't want to hear that, you know. I don't know about you. All that stuff went into my head for years. And, and I had not surrendered my life to Christ yet at that point. But then I did, and I'm like, oh, man, following Jesus means you follow Jesus. You, like, do what he asks you to do. 
All right, Jesus wants me to share him with others. And doing that has been the greatest, most um, satisfying thing I've ever done in my life is to be able to share a message with someone that changes their eternity, that gives them hope and freedom and a relationship with God. And God somehow says, hey, my plan to do that is through you, me, and you, if you follow Jesus. And isn't that funny how the opposite, like, it went from this great fear that that's something scary, or I'm not going to do it right, or I don't know the right words, or who do I think I am, to, oh my goodness, any opportunity I can in, in, you know, being sensitive like Paul was and trying to be effective in that, how can I do that? Because, man, there's nothing better than to, to have that kind of... There's only two things of eternal value in this world, the Bible says. People and God's word. Those two things last forever. Nothing else that we do, nothing else that we have is eternal. But those two things are. Um, so, okay, I got excited about that. We got to wrap up. Paul's reason for writing, verse 14. Let's just wrap up this passage here. I'm fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. You know these things so well, you can teach each other about them. I love that encouragement. This isn't, well, you got to get some special dude like Paul to share Jesus. He's going, you guys can do this, you know? And I've had people say, hey, Pastor Ben, can you share Jesus with my friend? I'm like, no, your friend doesn't know me. <laughs> Uh, hey, my buddy's trying to get a driver's license. Can you tell him how to get a driver's license? You have one. So do you. How'd you get it? I'm not like, you know, an expert driver's license. Like, well, let me tell you, this has to be presented just right on how to get a driver's license. You have to go to the DMV. Hey, I've been to seminary. I know how to share this information. And you have to stand in line for quite a while, you know. But that's what Paul's saying, hey, you know this. If you've accepted Jesus, you've simply trusted him to make you righteous. You realize that Jesus paid your debt on the cross? That, that, that now you're not, you're not a, just a, a forgiven sinner, but now Jesus, you have the righteousness of Jesus in your life, and that's how God views you? I mean, you, you know these things, right, because you accepted those. He says you, you should share those. Um, even so, I've been bold enough to write about some of these points, knowing that all you need to uh, need is this reminder. For by God's grace, I'm a special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. Good theology there. So I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ. Jesus has done through me in my service to God. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message and by the way I worked among them. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit. So he's talking about this, what's happened and how God's used him. And it says, by the way, he's, people have observed like the character that he has, he just worked with them. Um, and then he goes on. Uh, talks about miraculous signs being evidence that they go, okay, yes, I believe because of miraculous signs. Oh, well, is that something, is that a way God did work back then more and we don't see that so much today? Or how's that all work? No, 
Uh, there's an incredible miraculous sign that is the linchpin of the Christian faith. It is the resurrection of Jesus. It is Easter. And that is that points to what Jesus pulled off in Easter validates who he is, that he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be a, a sufficient sacrifice to cover the sins of the world. And God in resurrecting him and in in him coming back to life, something uh, having power in this incredible, miraculous way validates and shows that he really is who he says he is. And, and that's something that you can uh, explore and examine and, and look at. Um, <clears throat> and so those, that is something that we can even share today. Uh, that should be a part of what we share. And this way, I fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. And isn't that interesting? I love that verse. I came across that verse in, like, church planting, and we were looking at Utah. Well, that's part of what drove me to Utah. It's like looking how unreached Utah was, and then we came and we planted a church. Specifically, we started in Harriman, largest city in the U.S., without a Bible-based Christian church. Um, and that was part, I was like, oh, hey, yeah, we're being like, like Paul. This is what drives this crazy man. Um, verse 21, I've been following the, the plan spoken of Scripture where it says, those who have never, did I already read that? No, those who have never been told about him will see, and those who never heard of him will understand. Number two, we are all called to share our experience, not win an argument. I love as Paul is sharing with, with us how he does it, he says, I boast only in what God's done in my life. We are not called to like answer every objection and try to win some, some argument on some intellectual level. What we're called to do primarily is say, man, this is what God's done in my life. You will win that argument every time. God has changed my relationships. He's changed my heart. He's given me peace. My marriage is different. The way I, I do life is different. I've got joy. I've got, you know, people aren't going to be like, no. No, he boasts about what God has done in his life, and that's what he's sharing. Um, three questions we'll leave you with this morning. Three questions that every Christian should answer. Number one, where do I stand with God? Because that is a foundational understanding of knowing that God wants to use you to represent him. And if you're shaky on that and you think, well, I'm not, you know, worthy or I'm not, no. If you're in Christ, you are worthy. You are an ambassador of Christ. You have called to be salt and light in this world. So where do I stand with Christ? A verse, I know I probably use it a lot, but I want you to pick up one part of this verse because it talks about who we are in Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9. It says, but you are not like that. You are a chosen people. You are a royal, you are royal priests. You guys are all priests if you've put your trust in Jesus. You have that priesthood, a greater priesthood, uh, a holy nation, God's very own possession. But listen to this part. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Based on establishing who I am in Christ, out of that, I can share the goodness of God to others, and we're called to share the goodness of God to others. Number two, who has God put into my life that needs Jesus? 
And I think sometimes we just say we love everybody. We love all of Riverton and Harriman and Bluffdale and South Jordan and West Jordan and the South Valley and Utah and Salt Lake County and, you know, and the West, you know, the Rocky Mountain, Inner Mountain West and the U.S. And we just love everyone or something or we identify an area and we don't love anybody. <laughs> like who, who's the person that God has called you to love? Not just, well, we just love people. Well, who is that people? <laughs> who's that person that God's put in your life? who needs Jesus, and you are the representation for that person. You are the hope that God is trying to communicate through. We should all con- continually think about that person and know who those person, and maybe it is more than one person in our lives. Um, and number three, what am I going to do to get them to him? I'm going to ask the band to come up. we got one last song that we want to celebrate and sing but what am I doing to get them to him? 